0: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and
1: NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Today, in honor of Veterans Day, we hear what veterans in northern Colorado are thinking now that the longest war in American history has come to a close.
2: A lot were kind of surprised when we pulled out this past August. I don't think a lot of Americans realized that we were still in Afghanistan.
1: And we'll hear the story of two World War II veterans and the lasting impact their actions have had. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. On this Veterans Day, we're taking time to hear from two service members from Northern Colorado, both veterans of the long-running War on Terror, about what this summer's U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan means to them and to their peers. Later in the show, we'll also look at the lingering impacts of the actions of two World War II veterans. I'm joined today by KUNC's Michael DeOwana, who has covered military and veterans issues for nearly two decades. Welcome, Michael.
3: Hi, Aaron, and thanks for having me here on Veterans Day. You know this date, the 11th of November, is important. It was on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, that the First World War ended. It was horrible. About 8 million soldiers from all countries lost their lives and millions more civilians died as a consequence. Back then, Veterans Day was known as Armistice Day. But a few years after the next horrific war, World War II, we had Veterans Day. And unlike Memorial Day, which honors the fallen, Veterans Day honors Americans who served their country and made sacrifices for the common good.
1: And in that spirit, there are a number of events that are taking place or have taken place this week.
3: Yeah, like the Veterans Day Parade in Colorado Springs, breakfast gatherings, runs, local events around the state. And as I always say, if you know a veteran, it's a good day, especially if you're off work, to connect and to talk. Call them up or go for a walk and ask them how they're doing and keep that spark of friendship alive.
1: Absolutely. Well, how is this year different for veterans, given that the U.S. has now pulled out of Afghanistan?
3: That's a really tough question to answer. And I turned to a couple of veterans in northern Colorado for help on that. But first, let me recap some of the reporting I did with KUNC in the spring and summer leading up to the end of the country's longest war, the withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years there. Uh, You know, the suicide bombing at the airport in Kabul uh, during evacuation of Americans and Afghan allies made a brutal closing chapter. At least 180 people died, including 13 U.S. troops. Another 18 troops were injured, along with dozens of others.
1: I remember there was a lot of chaos during those evacuations and a rush by many Afghans who feared retaliation from the Taliban to get out.
3: Including Mahmoud Shamsi, who was stunned to see a government he worked for Fall so quickly to the Taliban. Shamsi is an Afghan and a former Colorado State University student, and he feared for his life as the Taliban closed in on Kabul. So he decided in August that he would try to get out of the country with his family. They found themselves mired in the confusion at the airport when a gate finally opened. That's when they made a break for it.
2: Pushed our way. My kids were screaming and crying like hell. My wife was screaming and I had to pull
3: her hand and she was pulling my sister's hand and I was holding one of my kids and trying to push our way, and somehow we made it. Shamsi was lucky to get onto a humanitarian flight. He, he wanted to come to Fort Collins, where he has so many friends from his university days, but the flight was to Poland. And as I've reported, Shamsi's friends uh, here are trying to help him get to the United States, but it's going to be a long process. Still, he considers himself very lucky. Uh, here's the voice of another Afghan,
4: and they're gonna kill whoever works for the Afghan army or American army.
2: Because they know who work, they know where they live.
3: That's Frey Dune. We're only using his first name, and even though he's been in the US for several years, he still fears the Taliban. Frey Dune spent thirteen years working for US troops as a combat interpreter and said Afghans who helped Americans are now hiding from the Taliban. They have some people. They're gonna knock the door, they're coming
2: inside they're gonna kill.
3: That In August, the Taliban made promises that it wouldn't retaliate against people who worked closely with the U.S. But many Afghans like Freydoon, just don't believe that.
1: Now, you said some Afghans who worked with the U.S. didn't get out. Do you know how many?
3: No, I'm told uh, the White House and the State Department might have some numbers, but they haven't been made public yet. Prior to evacuations, the nonprofit International Refugee Assistance Project said about 20,000 people had applied for what are called special immigrant visas. About half were stuck at the first stage of what can be a lengthy process, according to the group. And Freydoun knows this all too well. I actually applied five times and they denied my case. Frey might still be in Afghanistan if it had not been for dozens of veterans he served with who wrote letters on his behalf and lobbied the State Department. The Refugee Assistance Project, which worked with him, says the support of veterans helped his case.
1: But it's unclear how many might have gotten out in evacuations.
3: Yeah, uh, but it's also clear many were left behind. But there were also extraordinary efforts by members of Congress across Colorado and the country to help Afghan allies get out. So we're waiting for the dust to settle to see how many made it. There are some numbers that are expected to be public soon. And what I can tell you is, uh, in the meantime, is that the bonds between these combat interpreters and the Americans they served with run deep. Here's Travis Weiner, a veteran of the Iraq war who lives in Greeley, speaking with me about a combat interpreter he worked with.
0: Basically, um, he was one of us. He carried a weapon. We trusted him completely.
3: Weiner is talking about an Iraqi man that everyone in his unit and subsequent units knew as K.J. And just like Freydoon, K.J.'s special immigrant visa application got bogged down in paperwork. There were security clearance questions, renewed attempts to get his application moving. And while in the middle of it all, K.J. died in a vehicle-borne explosion it's
0: both heartbreaking um, and enraging. Reality, from my perspective, is this. People like KJ, the interpreters, the people that helped us in Afghanistan have sacrificed more for this country than most Americans. You could say they're more American than many Americans, right? And the fact that we can't even um, muster the political will to pass legislation because our immigration law system is so broken It's actually going to take new legislation in order to get a bunch of these folks over and processed, says something about us as a country, right? Are we the people we say we are?
3: Weiner is now a lawyer with the Public Defender's Office. He served in the Army from 2004 to 2009 with two deployments to Iraq, leaving as a sergeant. Aaron, he says these combat interpreters should be looked upon as veterans.
1: That's an interesting perspective, not one that I had really considered before. Now, what about the question of the war being over? What are veterans saying
2: about that?
3: Well, I touched on that with Weiner, as well as another veteran.
2: You know, it's, it's a little disappointing that most of Americans didn't pay attention, or didn't care.
3: That's Christopher Martin of Fort Collins. I asked how it feels to be a veteran right now.
2: I, I understand, you know, military is fairly insular, uh, especially now that more and more uh, and you have military families. It doesn't draw uniformly from across American society. And you know, lots of people don't know any veterans from a 20 year war, which is maybe shouldn't be the case, but it is. And you know, it's kind of too late to change a lot of that. I would say it would be nice to see if Americans started to care about the other aspects of the war on terror that are still going on. You know, we have a lot of troops still in Iraq. We have a lot of troops in Syria. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember early in the Trump administration, there were several Green Berets that were killed in Mali. Martin
3: served with the Marines from 2007 to 2011, including deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. He wore the rank of corporal the
2: day he left. We have troops deployed, you know, in active or semi-active regions all over the world. And it would be nice if uh, Congress and Americans, you know, pushed A little bit on the dod and say what are we doing here why are we doing this you know just to just to be a little bit more engaged from here on out
3: the dod being the defense department Uh, travis weiner's experiences in the war led him to a similar view as christopher martin's to ask more critical questions about the government's actions overseas and a desire to hold those in power accountable
0: our system is such that a general or generals or officers or politicians who lie caused thousands of deaths about a war, are not punished at all. The private who loses his rifle for a day is punished more severely. There's something uh, extremely, uh, extremely wrong about that.
3: Both Weiner and Martin say that even the Americans who do pay attention to veterans need to get beyond the niceties of pancake breakfasts and parades and engage with veterans in more meaningful conversations. I mean, really listen to them. That's exactly what Weiner and Martin are doing, by the way. Weiner is working on a documentary film called Meat Grinder.
0: We felt like it was unique in the sense that our idea was film as many vets as we can from Iraq and Afghanistan, Um, of every uh, specialty, race, gender, creed, everything, as diverse as possible. But the commonality being that they um, experienced um, some kind of deployment-related combat, right? Something, saw or did something that they feel um, profoundly impacted them. And to talk to these vets and give them an open forum about um, their service and and their feelings, but with a focus on a lot of vets who might not feel the way people would think they would feel. And we're hoping that it really shakes people up to make people realize um, this is what uh, war uh, does to people, including the vets. The idea, hopefully, is to really, really fundamentally shake up people's misconceptions about why why a lot of people join the military, what the military is like, why we fight wars, what they're actually like, and how veterans
3: feel about that service and the public's perception of it coming home. Christopher Martin has recently released a book. It's called Chasing Alexander, a Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. His starting point is Alexander the Great and ancient military battles.
2: I was reading a lot about these ancient historical figures and a little bit obsessed, had a lot of idolization for people like Alexander of Macedon. That in large part drove my decision to enlist. But then as I went to Iraq and particularly to Afghanistan, became disillusioned with war in general and and kind of the things that these ancient conquerors were doing.
3: His takeaway is that war is hell and that its shadow may loom over veterans long after they've come home. Martin also has a podcast where he talks to veterans and I asked him what he's hearing from them right now.
2: The two feelings is one, you know, kind of a a sense of pride, feeling that they did something, and another half that just kind of feels disappointed and forgotten.
3: And the latter group, he says, seem to be struggling more.
2: Especially more so the Afghanistan veterans. who say, you know, look, we, we fought there for 20 years and the Taliban took over the country faster than the U.S. did in 2001. Like, what did we really do? Was there any long-term impact at all? You know, it's kind of back to square one as if the last 20 years never happened. And that group in particular, I find, really struggles with the fact that Americans never cared about the war. You know, uh, I remember watching the 2016 debates, uh, presidential debates, and texting with some of my friends from my old unit. And everyone was very furious that Afghanistan never came up. Both uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were you know, saying the other one was going to start a war, but never talked about the fact that the U.S. was currently fighting a war. You know, even even at the national political scene, no one cared. And that certainly trickled down to a lot of Americans who I think a lot were kind of surprised when we pulled out this past August. I don't think a lot of Americans realized that we were still in Afghanistan.
1: We've just heard from two Northern Colorado veterans, Travis Weiner and Christopher Martin, on this Veterans Day, along with KUNC's military and veterans reporter, Michael Deoana. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. There are a couple of stories that you worked on this year about World War II veterans.
3: I don't often get to tell the stories of World War II vets. You know, they're aging and fading away. Uh, But they've left their mark on the world, stopping the horrors of fascism and genocide. And they've left a mark on me personally. Over the years, I visited uh, Normandy, France, where in 1944, the Allies stormed Nazi-held beaches and began their push to end the war in Europe. I've had stories featuring World War II veterans, and I've even talked to one Holocaust survivor, and None of them take the freedoms we enjoy today for granted. Like I said, uh, they're fading quickly. The Department of Veterans Affairs says of the 16 million Americans who served during that war, only about 240,000 are still alive.
1: And that number includes a World War II Army veteran in Denver who was surprised in June to learn about medals he'd never received.
3: Underneath a shady tree at the Xavier Jesuit Center, a small group gathered around Edward Flaherty to hear about his experiences in the war.
4: I think every moment in the military, you were just praying for the end to come, not knowing what you were going to be
3: facing. The retired Catholic priest did not expect to discuss the war or expect the audience, including a congressman, a retired general, his colleagues, and a gaggle of camera-slinging journalists. He joked...
4: If I would known it was happening, I would not have stayed here.
3: <laughs> Flaherty joined the Army just months before Japan's surprise attack at Pearl Harbor in 1941 that drew the U.S. into the war. He served in the Pacific Theater as a medical technician, rising to the rank of sergeant before leaving in 1945. Brother Glenn Kerfoot at the Jesuit Center wanted to see his colleague somehow honored.
5: I wanted to do something for him regarding his military service,
3: which I had seen uh, a similar service done for another general. This was about 10 or 12 years ago. Kerfoot eventually got in touch with Congressman Ed Perlmutter's office and pitched the idea. Perlmutter was open to it, so his staff looked at Flaherty's records to see if anything had been overlooked.
4: My office uh, has the ability to uh, do this kind of research through uh, the Defense Department and through the VA Mm -hmm. to track down, you know, records.
3: The congressman was bowled over at what his staff discovered.
4: It gave me goosebumps just like it's giving me goosebumps right now.
3: It turns out that Flaherty earned many medals and honors, but never actually received them.
4: I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America.
3: After the pledge, Army Major General Stephen P. Best addressed Flaherty.
0: I would like to say this is a timely presentation. It would depend on your definition of timely, but uh, 75 years uh, l- later, we're finally uh, getting
4: these in your, your possession.
3: For his part, Flaherty helped treat his fellow soldiers' wounds and assist with evacuations. Congressman Perlmutter asked him to turn to face the crowd and and began listing the medals.
4: The Army Good Conduct Medal was established in June 1941 and is awarded for exemplary behavior, efficiency, and fidelity in active federal military service.
3: And medals for the defense of the country, the Pacific campaign, and for victory in the war. Five medals in all, each pinned by the general to Ed Flaherty's shirt.
4: I don't know, uh, I'm sure this has been said a million times by a million different veterans, but thank you. That's all I can say, thank
3: you. After the ceremony, Flaherty opened up a bit more with reporters.
4: I never knew I had all those medals in my background, in my history.
3: When asked about the war, he said it was about fighting the evils that the Axis empires, including Germany and Japan, had inflicted on the world. It was about safeguarding freedom. Flaherty went on to say that he is dismayed by the tone Americans take with each other today. He said there is too much violence and hatred and venom I wish that the,
4: the spirit of our founding fathers is passed on to the younger generations coming along today because that's what our country needs, that spirit, that, that uh, moral strength otherwise we will collapse like all the empires in the history of the world.
3: Flaherty has lived in Denver since the late 1960s, serving as a priest and educator until he retired in 2017. And Aaron, I'm told he recently moved to a care community in St. Louis and that he's settling in there well.
1: And that brings us to another veteran story as we commemorate Veterans Day.
3: The story of Air Force Lieutenant Colonel John Mosley, whose name could grace a Veterans Affairs outpatient clinic in Aurora. Mosley was 93 when he passed away in 2015. He led an incredible life as a scholar from five points in Denver, a Colorado State University football player, a Tuskegee airman, a civil rights fighter, so much more. I meet John Claude Futrell at the Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library in Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood. He said this would be a good place to talk about John Mosley, one of America's first black military pilots.
5: My grandfather was born uh, just a few blocks away from here,
3: uh, back on uh, June 21st, 1921. John Mosley was 93 when he passed away in 2015. And the Colorado he grew up in was marked by racial segregation and exclusionism, from swimming pools to restaurants. As we keep going around here. Towards the back of the library, we come to a display case uh, honoring Mosley.
5: John W. Mosley. And we've got uh, his flight jacket. There is a... uh, bronze uh, a statue of a Tuskegee Airman that he was given.
3: Mosley was one of about 1,000 Black Army Air Corps pilots and navigators who served during World War II in a segregated military. A yearbook from Denver's Manual High School shows a long list of achievements next to his name.
5: National Honor Society, Student Council, uh map salesman, budget committee, graduating
3: committee, football, uh uh Christmas pageant nineteen thirty nine. Mosley gave the valedictorian address at his commencement in nineteen thirty nine. And then On a national merit scholarship, he went to what is now Colorado State University.
5: Going up to CSU uh, and then being a walk-on football player at
3: the same time. Back then, there were no black players on the team, and Mosley is believed to be the first in the modern era. as the United States became mired in World War II, Mosley knew how he wanted to serve. He
5: wanted to be a pilot, so he paid for his own pilot's lessons. Once um, you know, Tuskegee was formed, he was very excited about that.
3: In 1941, the Army set up an extremely arduous flight school in Alabama, and it was the only one giving black pilots a chance. By taking lessons, Mosley qualified as a civilian pilot, and thought when he graduated CSU in 1941 and entered the army, he'd go to Tuskegee. But he was told to report to an artillery unit in Oklahoma.
5: So he had to contest that um, and really push and fight um, to be a Tuskegee airman.
3: He wrote letters to the White House and to members of Congress.
5: And it wasn't just him; it was this entire community. It was it was basically five points that came to his aid in writing letters. And so really rallying this entire community behind this idea that one of their sons could be a pilot.
3: And it worked. After the war, Mosley returned to Denver and went to graduate school at Denver University, earning a degree in social work, and then for several years, worked with boys and young men at the YMCA. But in 1951, he was called back to the military for the Korean War, joining the Air Force. He stayed on, serving into the Vietnam War, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel before retiring in 1970.
5: Even in its discrimination and its systemic racism, that there was an opportunity, there was a way in through the military because of resources, because of reach, because of access, that there was a world of opportunity there. Um, and he did his best to take advantage and make sure that other people also had access as well.
3: He then became a special assistant within the Department of Health and Human Services, helping to shape national policies. His story just keeps going on, but I had to ask what kind of grandfather he was.
5: He was the kind of man who gave us both love and tough love at the same time. You know, he would have us up in the morning every day at 5.30, regardless if it was a weekend or not, to make our beds, um, and then go downstairs because grandmother would be working on breakfast, and we'd sit down at the table, no TV in sight, and have conversations about the previous day and what the day would bring, and then was work, and it didn't matter what kind of work it was. My grandfather, you know, he also, he taught us the, uh, the value of a dollar, He taught us the value of respect, both um, giving and gaining.
3: It was those qualities, along with his accomplishments, that prompted Congressman Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger, to propose legislation naming an outpatient clinic at the VA Medical Center in Aurora after Mosley.
0: Frankly, I was just blown away by so many aspects of his story and how compelling it was. Three separate wars over a period of decades. Uh, And then coming back to Colorado, where they continued to lead in in civil rights and community leadership. It's just a story of of leadership, of service, of people uh, way ahead of
1: their time.
3: If they were alive, what would John and his wife, Edna Mosley, who was Aurora's first Black City Council member, think about this kind of attention? John Claude Futrell says his grandparents did not want to become the center of attention. They just wanted to work hard and do good.
5: The naming of things after them, if they were still around today, I think they'd be pretty upset, (laughs) to be honest. Um, But then I I am unapologetic about it and I wouldn't care because I believe that the work that they did is work that not only should be celebrated, but remembered. And that's how people remember things, right? With symbols.
3: And Aaron, the bill to name that VA outpatient clinic in Aurora for Mosley has flown through Congress and is on President Biden's desk.
1: Michael DeOanna is KUNC's military and veterans reporter. Michael, thanks so much for joining us and sharing these stories.
3: You're welcome.
1: That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and please join us tomorrow for another episode of Colorado Edition from KUNC.